that made me kind of, no matter what I did, especially that kind of period between 18 and 30, uh, really feel that I could take any risk that I could. And that's, I think, the biggest factor, the biggest, if you like, driver in becoming an entrepreneur, the ability to know that you can fail and it's gonna be okay. Hey mate, how are you? I'm doing well, dude, how are you? I'm pretty good, I'm pretty good. I'm like, you know, little little gravelly and stuff, but I'm surviving. Same, same. Okay, well, we're gonna get into it then. Let's start a little bit with your background then. Where are you from? Where did you grow up? What was your childhood like? I guess more importantly, why do you think you're an entrepreneur? So uh, I grew up in Thessaloniki, Greece. I um, spent my first 18 years there. I had a great childhood, went to school across the street from where we lived, very kind of close, dense network of family, friends and kind of community. I was lucky enough to spend time in the city, but also outside. That period gave me like a really uh, great grounding and also gave me that confidence and that safety net, right? So I didn't come from a, a rich or wealthy family. It was a normal middle-class family, but it gave me that, that, uh, that understanding and that background and that place that no matter what happened, I could always go back to. And it also made me appreciate the things in life that uh, you come to appreciate a little bit later on that are free. They're kind of being out there, building things, then making things with your hands, then being close to, to the people that, that matter to you, right? And that made me kind of, no matter what I did, especially that kind of period between 18 and 30, really feel that I could take any risk that I, you know, I could. And that's, I think, the biggest factor, the biggest, if you like, driver in becoming an entrepreneur, the ability to know that you can fail and it's going to be okay. It's also, uh, I do recognize, a very privileged position to be in. So that's how I started. I never was um, entrepreneurial uh, growing up, but I was curious always. I was very, very interested in how things worked commercially, technically, socially from a very young age. I wanted to be an inventor, not an entrepreneur. I didn't really know what an entrepreneur was. I figured that out a little bit later on, but I was very, very clear that that's what I was going to do. What did you do when you came to the UK? Like, how did you follow your inventor ambition, if you will? So I hatched the plan when I was uh, 14 or 15. And I know it sounds a little bit incredible, but I was going to first study. I was going to get into engineering or telecoms. A big influence when I was growing up was my uncle that lived in Germany. And he gave me a copy of a magazine that was talking about how mobile phones would reach about 80 million users by 2000, 80 million. And I was like, wow, this is really interesting. And he kind of, he was the first one that exposed me to this idea of the internet and the web and how things were becoming connected. So when I was 15, my plan was to do engineering or computer science, to learn a few things that you learn in big companies and then to start my own business and then kind of grow that business, sell it, make a lot of money and then figure out what I was gonna do next. That's more or less what I did. I did come to the UK, to York. I did do engineering. I came to London to for a, a failed attempt to do a master's in information processing and neural networks. I got a job at Vodafone. I stayed there for three years. So, you know, I made the smart decision. I quit and I joined this, this company that had just opened an office here in the UK and they had raised a bunch of money from this entity called uh, Sequoia. 
I stayed for about a year. And then in 2006, I quit and I started my first business, which was Trusted Places, which was a local classifieds business powered by user-generated content. I ran that, grew it, took it profitability, and then we were acquired by Yell Group, the Yellow Pages company in 2010. So unusually, you're someone who very clearly came up with a plan and seemed to quite have rigidly followed it. And it sounds like the only thing that you sort of backed out of almost or changed within the plan was the masters, which, if I'm not mistaken, wasn't necessarily part of the plan anyway. So is is kind of the reason why you dropped out of that, because it didn't necessarily seem to be a core part of that jigsaw puzzle. That's not entirely true. I actually didn't drop out. I, I couldn't do it. I, I couldn't finish it. I was really interested in artificial intelligence. Back, this is now a long time ago, right? This is now... Yeah, you wanted to be really rich, Sox, so <laughs> you should have just held on to that idea and you'd have been just fine. I was about 20 years too early, but also I found that limit between capability and, and motivation. So I was really interested in the practical applications of artificial intelligence. I was interested from a kind of philosophy of mind, human evolution, how artificial intelligence really is kind of interconnected to who we are as a species. And I could really see that machine learning and artificial intelligence would transform. There's just, I, I, there was no doubt as to how it, that it would. The question was how long it would take and in what kind of forms that transformation would take place. So when I finished my engineering degree, I applied to the AI MSc at Edinburgh, but I really wasn't, you know, software engineering wasn't my strongest sense. So I got accepted at the Department of Mathematics here at King's College to do information processing and neural networks. And I got a scholarship to do that as well. Up until that point, I thought that I could do whatever it is that I chose to do. You know, if you applied enough time effort and persistence, you would come through the other side. It didn't really work out that way. I was just not at all interested in that. And I, I, I couldn't finish it. I couldn't tell whether you were still talking about your uh, masters or you were talking about Newman, that with enough effort, energy, persistence, you come through the other side. But we potentially will get on to uh, erectile metaphors <laughs> shortly. So just, just, just to come back to this, so trusted places. You have your first swing at the bat as an entrepreneur and you have an exit. That must have you in God mode, ego level. You must be thinking everything you put your mind to, whatever you touch turns to gold. You must have that kind of belief because you've manifested a path and it's all gone right. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's exactly that, but also completely the opposite. So you, you do, you have a few things. Of course, yes, you look back and it is a great achievement, right? I was completely burned out by the time I got there. I was also, all of a sudden, I had learned a lot more than I knew when I was starting. So I wasn't playing anymore from a position of, when I started my first business, it was like, okay, I had saved a bunch of money. I had sold a bunch of Google stock I had bought at the time. I don't know financially what would have been a better decision. But I was walking in with a complete ignorance and total lack of fear of failure and also complete lack of really basic things. Like I had to really ask and learn how do you build a website? How do you, how do you start a company? 
I, I really knew absolutely zero. I found the other day the original pitch deck that we had done to raise our seed round. And it is, I mean, you would absolutely laugh at how basic it was, right? Now, fast forward four years in, when you've grown a business, you've hired employees, you've, you've pivoted to a kind of B2C to B2B model, you've sold to enterprise, you've raised money, you have a board, you go through the process of getting an exit, you've hired people, you've fired people, you've, you've just like, the, the learning curve was just exponential. And then all of a sudden, you have a much better filter in ideas, what's going to work, what is not going to work. You've also been burned out and you decided to kind of take some time off. You now have, you have money that you just didn't have before. And it just becomes a lot harder to find your, 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 your fit, your authentic motivation about what it is that you really want to do and also decide to start something. And you go from that honeymoon phase where you are at the top of the world. And the longer you live that, you know that you're going to do something again, because what are you going to do? Go get a job. That that ship has sailed for you right now, which is, I, that's, by the way, total bullshit. It's, of course, that's that's not true at all, right? But you, you think Well, that- but it's true, true for you, right? As in, that's that's what's important. You're not speaking for everyone, but at that time, it's true for you. Exactly. And like I say, you are at that point when you're like, cool, I just thought of that. I did it. Obviously, from here on, I can do absolutely anything I want to do. But I I was just going to say, let's let's not forget, you know, speaking of LLMs and neural networks and stuff, Sam Altman was very almost a Microsoft employee. So the ship has never (laughs) sailed for everyone at all times. (laughs) It was almost the world's most famous employee. But yeah. Okay, so back to you. <laughs> so yeah, it, it was um, it, it was fantastic. It was great. It was a f- uh, amazing kind of period of time uh, going through that. But it was also looking back. It, it was a very very hard uh, grind, like it always is. And I underestimated kind of the the recovery time. And I also underestimated that you just just because you did it once, it doesn't mean that you can just as easily do it twice. Why do you think it succeeded? Like, what is it about trusted places that actually made it work? It was the, um, you know, the uh, that that grind that I just mentioned. We just, I didn't let the company fail. We were so backs against the wall, so much, you know, we we had so much pressure. We did have limited resources, but we just did not give up. We found a way through it. We built a revenue model. On the fly, we used the technology and we licensed it and we built a white label version and we sold corporates, uh, we cut costs, we just did anything. I knew at the time that, so we went to raise our Series A in September 2008. Not a very good time to go raise money as Lehman Brothers was collapsing. And at the time that we went out to raise just before this US company raised $100 million, that company became was Yelp. And you could really see where the market was going to go at that point. But also that gave us a lot of clarity of what we needed to do. And also it created exit paths that just would not have been available had we raised that kind of money. So we doubled down on profitability. We kept the business sensible. We doubled down on the things that that worked. And then from a position of strength, when the time was right, we also were open to having conversations that led to the outcome that that we had, which was a successful outcome for me, 
for investors and for everybody involved. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. How much of that at that time, how much of that success, getting an exit, which is a milestone, right? It is something that entrepreneurs do not just want to achieve, but in a sense, feel they need to achieve to have that sort of validation tick mark. So how much of your experience with Trusted Places was about also raising the right amount and having the right plan and having the right timing? It was very much that, right? And it was, okay, um, this is now applying hindsight to it and it all kind of fits in uh, perfectly. But you could see it at the time that it did make better sense. An exit is, it's not an end on its own, right? But at the same time, I was a bit naive when I was starting that business that I felt a bit embarrassed to be thinking about an exit or talking about an exit. It, It was just, immaturity. But when I was also though clear-headed enough to see that the market was going to sustain one or two players at the top, and also you could see that Google at that point was just moving towards taking a lot more of that volume to properties that they were building themselves. So you could see that, you know, if you fast forward a few years, you would either be part of something bigger or you would need to find something else to do. And when you have that clarity, you better kind of set a plan in motion that gets you to that point. Otherwise, you are wasting your investors' money, but more importantly, you're wasting your team's time and your own time. And that is the the most precious uh, of resources that you have. Okay, so what do you do when you sell? Like, did you buy yourself anything fancy? Did you... 
uh, get your e- did you find your ego like knocking up a notch or two? Did you start to think that you were better than other people? Like reflect back on a slightly younger socks. Like what happened to you? What happened to the circumstances around you? The thing that I really wanted to do is my my family and kind of you know the, that place that I mentioned outside of the city. We have this house there that it's ours and the two you know my father's brothers, and we always had like a, a space that had an outdoor basketball court that was kind of dirt it had an old hoop and the thing that i really wanted to do was to go and kind of take over it's like imagine 200 square meters of like outdoor space and build a proper basketball court and i spent my whole summer doing that pretty much (laughs) single-handedly i really wanted to do something physical that i could just spend full focus doing so that's the thing i did most I did a few other things, the mountains and the sea. And the most important thing is I spent a few months in San Francisco and I invested in Calm.com and Secret Escapes. That was a really productive six months. But yeah, and one of the best things, yeah, definitely better than buying. I don't know what you would buy after your first exit, but buying Calm stock was, yeah, a, a good purchase. A very smooth choice from you. Okay, so how long between this period of exited successful founder to basketball-laying-court physical workman to prolific San Francisco angel investor with excellent, exquisite taste? Which of these identities did you sort of feel like was most alluring to continue with and what made you want to get back in the saddle, so to speak, and actually focus again on a new startup? Look, it was, I always knew that that was going to be a transition period, right? You just need to take some time off, recover, recharge, get inspired. And that's why I spent some time in, in San Francisco. But I knew I wanted to, to build something again. And this is when the genesis for what I'm doing now came about. So in 2000, this is now 2011. So I spent about a year doing things that just did not involve me. I gave myself a year to enjoy and I had a fantastic time doing that. And, you know, people say that some people, I guess, cannot spend a couple of weeks or a month not being actively involved in something. I'm I'm not like that, but I think you can easily find things to enjoy and motivate yourself that don't involve necessarily doing what, what we do. But I think after a time, you need to be committed to something uh, for me that's that is important right so after a year i um, was looking what i was going to do next and i wanted to do something i could be building for a long time i was personally passionate about and that's when i started looking into health and well-being crucially what's what i could do with technology and with product and with design that would really have an impact on your health, it would really have an impact on your vitality, it would really have an impact on you making the most of your of your time here. And I started looking into performance, human optimization, longevity, health span expansion. And in 2012, I couldn't really wrap my head around the go-to-market and how to start a business like that. It was too broad. Legislation wasn't really there. Technology wasn't quite there, but also consumer behavior wasn't there at the time. And what does zero do? Yeah, it's almost like and, another neural networks moment, right? Where you have the interest, but do you, are you going to sustain the motivation over the period of time? It's too far away at that point. It's too much of an early idea. It was too early and it was uh, precisely too, too broad 
so I zeroed in on kind of human connection and sharing moments with the people closest to you was something that I felt, you know, I was missing having spent most of my life away from immediate family. And that's why I decided on focusing on Together, which is what, what I did next with, with my co-founder at the time, Matthew, which is when we, when we first met as well. That was when we first connected. And I remember the crowdfunding, I think it might have been the first ever crowdfunding deal that I invested in. And I remember being just so excited having met you early on, you know, we met in co-working space. I think we met in Runway East when that was just taking off in, in the UK as in co-working startups, the whole thing was just starting up and we met in this space. And I was so excited to hear about your experience and the fact that you guys were going on crowdfunding and that, you know, someone like me who was brand new to startups could invest in another founder and their dreams in such an easy way. It was also exciting. I'd love you to tell me a little bit about that moment in time in your life, like building together. And also, obviously, that company failed. So what it was like to your sense of self-worth and understanding of who you are as an entrepreneur back then? To have had the rare, the rare window of the first one succeeding and the second one failing. It's usually the other way around. First of all, I'm sorry about your your investment. It was uh, crowdfunding. Was uh, I'm expecting I'm expecting beers. At, at, at some point, yeah, we we will have to make it. You know, make you whole uh, on that. Yeah, like beer, obviously. Uh, of course, of course. You know, it was. It did that one hurt. It hurt a lot because. Crowdfunding was a factor, you know, we had raised money from friends, from family. We really gave it a, a, a really good go. We were just convinced that we were onto something. We built, we built great product features. We built great technology. We had a community that, that loved the product, but we just couldn't make it work. And we gave it, we gave it longer than we should have. We should have stopped and look ahead and see that it was it was not going to work. And that did knock me back big time. It was a big realization. And it wasn't the fact that we so much that we failed that was the, the knockback. It was imagine, you know, we worked on that business for three years. And looking back, you could have probably decided that that was not going to work in the first three months if you were genuinely honest with yourself. And the thing that hit me the hardest was just accepting the denial that we lived through for those three years. And that had an impact. You know, again, it took time to go back, recharge, recover, find confidence again. Confidence is the, big, is, is the thing, right? That you, you need, not, not as a founder, but in most things, believing that you can do something is a you know, a highly correlated determinant, whether you can do it or not. And the moment you lose that, you just, what are you going to do? So you just need to go back and step and dig a little bit deep and rediscover that and accept it. Be a little bit gentle on yourself as well. I was very, very hard on myself. And you just need to accept that these things do happen, that you you just made a mistake and just learn from it and, and move on. And just in terms of what, so listeners understand, like what was Togetherer? Like, what was your vision for it? How close did you get to realizing the vision? 
So it was, Together was a private network for you, your family, and your closest groups. So it was a mobile app that had different groups where you could share photos, videos, and messages. It was designed to be 100% private. It was designed to be cross-platform, to be super simple, so that you could use it with people that were necessarily not very tech-savvy, and you could do that in a way without advertising getting in the way. And the plan behind that was we were right in identifying Facebook as the enemy at that time because the experience sucked, because privacy was becoming a concern and because it just was getting, it just wasn't something that you wanted to share intimately with the people that really mattered to you. What we failed to appreciate was what was happening with messaging and WhatsApp. And that was a really painful lesson in the power of viral growth. When we started, I think we realized that WhatsApp was a threat. And WhatsApp, I think, had 50 or 80 million users at the time. So, you know, well, you know, 50 million users, billions of families across the world, plenty of space for both. But I think WhatsApp within about 18 months or something like that had 800 million users. And you could just hear it when you're speaking to users Time and time again, well, you know, if I'm going to onboard my mother, my grandmother, I'm going to do it with one app and that app is going to be WhatsApp because that's my utility. So no matter what we did at that point, we just didn't really have a chance of building the company we wanted to build. Now, at that point, you had a decision to make. You could build a business that was a bit of a, call it a side hustle, where you could monetize with albums, you can make a premium product, you could just keep your burn minimal, you could scale that, you could grow that. We just didn't want to do that. We didn't want to do that because we didn't believe you could just do this on the side because you were dealing with people's really private content, private moments. You needed to keep attention, you need to keep investing, you need to be growing, and that would take time and that would take focus. And we just were not prepared to give it that time and focus. So we did the the most graceful shutdown, I think, of uh, any startup that I've you know encountered. We used the last three months of time that we had and money to build tools to let people pull their content out of the app. We gave everybody notice that this was happening. We left no invoice unpaid. We wrapped everything in a bow and we just shut it down. We gave people their EIS relief. So I believe we did that right. There's another school of thought that you should use every last drop of fuel you have until you just crash on that wall, fly off that cliff, whatever analogy you want to use. We just did not want to do that because we're dealing with people's, again, content, and we just didn't want to let them down. So that's what we did. How do you reflect on that choice? Because of course, you're right. The, the reason why people are told to just fly off the cliff is because you, at any point in a startup, you could have your eureka moment. And not just in secret leaders, but in all kinds of startup law, right? The last throw of the dice, the last crazy idea does get you to that random insight, that inflection point, that moment. How do you reflect on that? Do you think you made the right cause? Obviously hard to say, but... Do you know, if somebody was asking me for advice and they were in a similar situation, I would ask them just personally how they felt, how much they had it in them to continue and what it is they wanted to do, their relationships that they had. I would advise them to just, 
use that last drop of oxygen as long as you can and see what you can figure out. You, you have a good idea of what, what I'm talking about. But in our case, we just, we, A, we didn't have any great ideas left that were related to what we're doing. We didn't believe that in the time that we had, we could come up with something radically different. And again, because we were dealing with people had put a huge amount of trust in us, we just couldn't do anything different. So it was the the right thing to do. All of the investors that I spoke to, by the way, who were a lot of them were personal friends. And that was, again, a massive for me. It was a painful experience. Everybody was just completely don't worry about it you know we do this with our eyes closed it's a startup don't even think about it for a second so our investors nobody was everybody of course was upset but nobody was upset in a way that wasn't anything other than gracious and supportive but we just didn't want to do that to our users so if i had to do it again i would do it that way and then step back and see outside of that if you which is what we did actually the team stayed together and we spent six months on something completely different we had a term sheet on the table for um, that idea and it was 1.2 million pounds for like a pre-seed round which was fantastic and at the time we decided that we're just not going to take the money because the idea wasn't good enough and we walked away from it money is a really interesting trap it's an interesting trap in people's careers you know, look how many people stay in big, big jobs they don't like because the money's just too good to walk away. And you and I will both know those people because we've been trying to hire them out of companies forever. Money is also a huge trap for entrepreneurs because you believe that the money will solve the problem. And actually, one of the problems, of course, is getting the money to execute on an idea. But when someone dangles money in front of you and says, here's free money, it's really hard not to think, well, I could make anything work. And I think that there's like probably this arc that you sort of go on through an entrepreneur's journey, which is coming back to your previous point, discipline and motivation, right? So there's obviously the discipline to turn up every day and want to do the job you're doing, but then the motivation to actually care enough about the problem. That's a very different thing. And in the situation you're sharing just there, someone offering money to do uh, a different idea that's not something you care about, you could see that even if the money's there and you could make a success of it, it wouldn't necessarily be something that you wanted to spend your time on earth doing. Yeah, when we had our situation at the end of Grabble, we had money left in the bank. We had all these different options of things that we could do. We basically offered to give it all back to investors. And the investors said, well, hold on a second. You know, what, like, what would you do with this money? Here's three months, go away and come back with a new idea. And if it sounds like something we want to back, then why don't you use that as your pre-seed money? So similarly to you, you know, we had about a million pounds and we spent about 300,000 pounds of that paying off everyone, doing all the stuff right. And when it came to the investors offering them their money back and them choosing not to take it and choosing to back something else, that's on them. But as long as your employees and, you know, your building providers and all of the bills that you have are cleared debts, then you can go again. And at that point, we had £700,000. So we sort of looked at that point of saying like, you know, £700,000 actually a very decent seed round as well. And it's a decent seed round if it's your seed round or pre-seed round even to build the thing you want to build. 
And that's sort of where we were very uniquely lucky. We sort of got to straddle almost both of your stories, right? We got to say, here's paying off everyone and doing absolutely the right thing to shut down a company in the gold standard way that you possibly would. Which, by the way, for anyone listening that ever has to do that, that in itself is like a two to three month process. That's a lot of headspace. And the one problem that we had starting our new company was like, between Joel and I, my business partner, how... Who today is working on the shit you don't want to have to do, which is winding down the company, and who today is getting to like think about the fun stuff? And it's very hard to do both those things at the same time. We did it, but I think there's a lot that goes into winding down a company properly and professionally and doing it so that you can hold your head high. I'm glad we did it the right way. I'm glad for you that you did it the right way. It's not the most important thing for everyone, but it sounds like for us that really was. I think it is. I think it's uh, it, the reputation, the relationships, and the fact that you know um, you will go back and look at those people and speak to those people is really important. Okay, so with Togetherer, what were your, I guess, real deep insights? What did you learn in the ashes, I suppose, of that startup experience? So there's a few things. One, um, don't underestimate that kind of power of denial. <laughs> You need to face your reality, Crystal, you know, as, as clearly as you possibly can. And you know instinctively a lot of times what's right, what's wrong, and just face that reality and take decisions quickly. The other one, the practical lesson was you cannot be stuck in a gray zone as a business. What I mean by that, right? With Together, we were not a um, product that could grow virally because it was an open, free product that had kind of feedback loops that let you grow on the back of your user base. That was like against what we're trying to build. And also, we're not a product that could monetize with a very clear funnel that you can spend marketing dollars on one side and have profitable customers the other side. If you don't have one or the other, you don't have a business. So again, be crystal clear about this, decide early on, and either double down on distribution and figure out how you're going to get that done, or build a genuinely viral product that can grow through the back of your users, and then figure out revenue at some other point, if that it is what you want to do. I want to move on to the inspiration behind Newman. So it's 2012. And you're interested in, in health and longevity, but it feels like a long way away. Fast forward, you've just had a negative experience with a startup and you've got burnout and, you know, things haven't gone well. And I'm guessing your ego's taken a notch or two downhill as well. Talk to me a little bit about what forces come together to drive you back into the startup game. That kind of conviction motivation, that kind of, I feel like that belief that whatever happened was a setback. And the core thing that you really want to do is to create something, to be involved in building something and effectively starting another company, right? Um, I did explore at that point whether that was still felt like the right decision, and it did. I did go back and look at the why things didn't work out. And then I went back to look at the things that I really wanted to do. That's kind of when I did a lot of reading, I spoke to people, I, I came across that concept of authentic motivation, which is something that's much harder to actually really realize and, and achieve than, than we think. 
And I first I committed that I wanted to do something again. Just just quickly, what is authentic motivation? I've not actually heard of this term. Authentic motivation is it's really simple. It is what it actually uh, what it sounds like. We have the things that motivate us can be intrinsic, can be extrinsic, can be things that we believe that we want to be doing, but in reality they they're not really aligned with who we are and what we value. Authentic motivation is when you line up your values, your intrinsic drivers, and then an end goal and an outcome that kind of connects all of those together. Being, for example, I don't know, a great founder for some people may be more connected with certain things that become with the glamorization of being an entrepreneur, for example, right? Or when you're motivated by what you're going to get in the end, but you're not motivated by the process and the journey itself. When you go through the things that you go through as a as an entrepreneur, and again, you know, I want to be careful not to everybody goes through whatever struggle it is that they're going through. The from a work perspective, when you choose to be an entrepreneur, the, the 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 key difference is that there's no off switch. No matter how good you are at managing that, at taking better care of yourself, all of those things that you should be doing. So that's the the struggle that is different. Now you need to be prepared that you need to be enjoying that. You need to be fully committed, fully invested. That's what I mean by authentic motivation. And did you have any like any other motivations? So you talk about intrinsic, you talk about extrinsic, you talk about the sort of authenticity behind it. Um, a lot of people that start these kinds of companies, myself included, you know, we're both in a health space. I started mine because of my experiences with mental health. A lot of people, they come from personal mm-hmm. stories or stories to do with their family. Do you have like any of those that you know, extrinsically almost that sort of drove you towards this as well. Of course. And it's, you know, it's hard to kind of pull apart some of those things, right? Because they become part of of who you are. For me, a big part of it was I had somebody quite close to me pass away from cancer at a relatively young age, um, smart, educated, uh, but just didn't know how to really take care of themselves. Me personally, I was, I was 30 years old. This is before I started this business, and I was seemingly healthy, but actually I was I was not. I was smoking at the time. It's crazy to think about it, but I you know used to smoke cigarettes, right? Who does that? Drink, not kind of take care of myself the way that 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 I should be, and it all kind of sometimes can come a little bit to your head, and you have this sort of eureka moments. For for me, it was uh, I was playing basketball again. <laughs> It's a reference point for my life, right? But this was, I think, at the last year of Trusted Places. And it was it was like full on. A lot of work at the same time, a lot of kind of being out pretty much every single night to a dinner, a networking thing, and this and that. And some, you know, mixed with a bit of traveling, throwing a little bit of kind of pick up a cold. And I was, we were playing a, a kind of a tournament game and um, I came off at halftime. And I sat down and I was, holy shit, what is going on? Um, I felt like something I've never felt before at the time. I was actually worried what was happening at that point in time because my heart was just all over the place. And it was that moment that I personally kind of resolved that I was just, there was no going back, right? I was going to 
change. I was going to be on a completely different path. That was also at the same time my uncle was passing away from cancer slowly, from smoking for 40 years. And that kind of state for me personally, kind of intrinsically, extrinsically, but you could see it was a moment in time was like, this is just not good enough. I'm going to go on a completely different path. And being personally interested and invested in that and then building a company in that space as well, it's no matter else, you know, how things work out one way or another, at least you spend time on something that you deeply, deeply care about. And that's not often the case when you're you're building a business. No, you know, one thing I'll say is when I started Heights, um, and, and I'm sure you relate to this, when you build a company, you have to be a sector expert of some of some kind. You have to learn the industry stuff. You have to read all the articles about it. You have to network with other people in the space. You have to genuinely be curious. And you can force that curiosity. Of course, it's your job to be good at that thing. So when I was running Grabble and I had to do all of that for fashion, I enjoyed it because I'm a curious person and I, I was enjoying the people I met and I thought it was all valuable. But the stark difference between having to do that about fashion and having to do that as my job in health, and I know you can relate to this, is so different. It's so brilliant. There was nothing I was ever learning in Grabble that was actually useful for my life, really. It was just useful for me professionally. And if you're lucky enough to work in an area that you are personally interested in, or that can benefit your actual health outcomes in your life, and that's your job, it almost doesn't seem like a job most days. It seems like you found the cheat, you found the cheat code to turn up to work and feel motivated every day. You know, it's, it's a really fascinating phenomenon. You know, the, the idea around neuroplasticity and the idea that your brain will literally change by the information that you feed it. So input equals output. Well, if your job every day is to learn more and more about how to stay healthy, guess what? The output is by the very nature, you just become healthier because you can't ignore all those things for, for too long. It just becomes who you are. It is. And, you know, it sounds a little bit obvious when you say it. Uh, it actually took a failed business and a really good part of my 30s to to realize that and uh, yeah it's i guess maturity one of my first investors and board member at trust places hugo birch who unfortunately passed away actually earlier this year i remember one of his the core strengths he used to list under his linkedin profile was passion and i used to be very i don't know judgmental of that and critical i was like passion, passion, whatever, right? You just, and looking back, I was just, and I said this to Hugo, how much that I had an underappreciated at the time and how painful it was to learn that, that passion is not just something that you turn on and off. Maybe you do when your business has reached a scale where you have customers, you have revenue, you have a team, you have something that works, you can be passionate about for sure. But you're just never going to get to that point if you don't really care about what you're doing. At least, you know, I can't. Some other people can. I think you're right. And it is all about the type of person you are. However, we're talking to you and you are this type of person. So talk to us about starting Newman then. When did it start? What's the, what's the mission? What are you trying to solve? And are you still enjoying it? I am 100% enjoying it. I'm, I'm actually loving it. Let me tell you a little bit first about what, you know, what we're building and, and why, right? So Newman is a health partner for men. So the mission is to make men healthier, to help them make the most of the time in, you know, of their lives by actually not only alleviating symptoms and problems and things that get in the way of them enjoying life to the fullest, 
but actually helping them put them on a path to being genuinely healthier, especially when they're going through that middle of life, that 40 to 60 kind of stage. Now, we started the business by being a trusted, convenient, accessible provider for issues that affect men that they find hard to talk about. So things like erectile dysfunction and hair loss, which are erectile dysfunction is obviously it's part of your identity. It's part of your sexual health. It has a massive impact on your kind of of who you are and how genuinely healthy you are. But also it can be an early sign of cardiovascular disease, of something that is going wrong with your underlying health. So something that you should not ignore. It can be psychogenic, of course, as well. It can be something that is related to performance, anxiety, a whole bunch of other things. But we help you find simple solutions that can alleviate symptoms of erectile dysfunction. But also we give you a diagnostic uh, capability to help you understand what is going on with your overall health. We can connect you to a doctor that can advise on your general health. And we can put you on a path on better health from that point on when you engage with Newman as you kind of age as you go on about your life. Now, that's kind of where we started. We're not a business that is a vertically integrated health group here in the UK. We are regulated by the Care Quality Commission. We have our own doctors, our own pharmacists. What does that mean, break down vertically integrated? Because I understand what it means, but not all listeners r- run consumer brands. So For sure. So let me actually go back a little bit with the the biggest enemy when it comes to being healthy. Education. Uh, that people just were not aware of the right information so they could make the right decisions. That is true to an extent. The biggest enemy is actually inertia. It is inertia and then it is friction. Most people actually, they become accustomed to believing in suboptimal health. And when they do make the decision of actually doing something about it, they can take that first step. But then every second step in that journey is frictionful. You need to take ownership. You need to be the agent that is driving the conversation. You need to pick up the phone. You need to book the appointment. You need to go to one place. You need to go to a different place. And when it comes to actually integrating different parts of the healthcare ecosystem, you're the one in the driving seat and you're the one that needs to do a lot of the work because everything is fragmented and different, right? You have your doctor, your pharmacy, your lab. And if you want to have a more holistic view that spans different areas of your health, you need to put a lot of effort and spend a lot of money to do it. So to deliver better outcomes to your health, to make you healthier, what we focus on is removing that friction. And the way that we do that is by being able to control and provide the entire spectrum of health, anything from the diagnosis to the prescribing to the dispensing of medication to then the management and the ongoing care and support that you need. We put a lot of effort into making that as easy as possible, but at the same time, of course, as safe and as appropriate, clinically appropriate for you. And the only way to do this is to invest in the technology, is to build a platform that that whole experience is relying on. And it is to have the right regulatory also coverage and set up in the business to be able to do that. So we're regulated in the same way that your GP would be. We also have our own pharmacy that is, again, covered by the regulations that your local pharmacy would be. And then we have the people that provide care within that context that all focus on you under one brand, one experience, one set of actions that you need to take. 
Okay, so there's a lot going on there. And I suppose the difference between where you start and where you go for that requires different levels of vision, ambition, milestone setting, achieving them. So talk to me about your fundraising journey. Like, how much did you raise in your first round after turning down your one and a half million and suddenly becoming exceptionally sexy uh, to investors, which is a good a good lesson for founders, right? Like the ability to say no, actually, uh, you know, the psychology works that way as well for investors. But having the conviction of when you do want money and what you need it for, um, what did you raise? What have you raised in subsequent rounds and sort of how has the vision developed? Sure. So... Those people that I said, you know, um, that we said no to at the time, I worked quite closely with them when it came to starting this business. I worked out of their office. We spent the first three months kind of working on the plan together and we raised two and a half million pounds with nothing, just with um, with the idea, basically, and a rough outline of that. Because I also knew that this business, because the space is really large, because it attracts competition, because it would take time to develop the vision. So we raised two and a half million pounds as a pre-seed round. We raised 12 million pounds as a Series A, sorry, 10 million pounds as a Series A. And then we raised 30 million pounds as a Series B. So overall, 42 million pounds in equity in the span of three years. And then we added some venture debt on top of that. And we took the business from, let's say, a fairly concentrated experience around erectile dysfunction and hair loss that provided you access to generic medication to now a business that covers a range of conditions with sexual health, aesthetics being a core part of it, but also obesity and weight loss and diagnostics now being really parts of what we do as Newman to a brand that is one of the most recognized in its space in the UK as a health partner for men, and to a company that is now, the core of it is about 115 people right now, where we've built technology that we're proud of, where we've built experiences that let our customers go through that journey, our patients of coming to us for a condition, us providing them the medication, but also providing them support content, access to coaching, and then all the supplementary products that we can offer as Newman on diagnostics, supplementation, and solutions for other conditions as well. And the vision is to create this integrated approach to your health that can help you with the multiple problem areas, optimization areas around your health. To do that for men, not just in the UK, but across the world as well. And to really change the way that we think and we act about our, our health and well-being. My, my ultimate ambition is that we can make a promise to you when you are 30 years old, when you're 40 years old, that if you take one action with us for whatever that is, 20 years from that point on, you're going to be in a healthier place because you have taken that single action. And we're not going to let you fail along the way. We're going to let you fail, but we're going to be there to help you and support you along that journey. We're going to make it easy. We're going to make it delightful. And we're going to be able to prove it to you during that time. That's what, what we're working towards. So typically speaking, and I say this from experience as both a man and running obviously a consumer health company myself, men are, but where we serve women as well, so we're actually more 55% female, 45% male. So it's a slight skewing, but it's kind of half-half. Men seem to be much less intuitive um, with their health, much less aware of their health. You know, I, for one, you know, 
whatever the opposite of a hypochondriac is, ignorant, I suppose you could call it. Uh, the fancy word would be stoic, but, you know, just ignorant would be the more honest approach. And I think that's probably like an interesting challenge for you to solve as well, right? Because everything comes from awareness in our life. In like, if we want success, if we're happy, if we're not, if we're in the right relationships, are we happy in our jobs? Are we healthy? All of it stems from awareness. And I find that men really struggle to have the self-awareness to listen to their bodies. And the product we launched that really helped me understand this, which I never even thought about or anything, was our probiotic. So with probiotic and gut health, suddenly I became more aware. Women talk about their poo a lot more than men. Men do it because it's funny and we'll talk about farts and stuff like that. So it's banter or humor. But women talk about their poo in relation to health. And women are like literally able and comfortable to talk about poo and their digestion and all of this stuff. Uh, and the more I've unpacked it and understood from customers, obviously it also comes from having menstrual cycles and a general cadence throughout their life of always really being dialed into their bodies. And men do just not have this moment unless they have a health problem. One big health problem creates one big awakening. That's what happened to me. It's what's happened to so many people. But in the wellness space, and when you're serving just men, I imagine that is probably one of your biggest obstacles, right? It's men understanding themselves well enough to even know where to dial in, whether to even bother starting working with Newman, whether to care. Yeah, no, that's that's for sure it's true. And this is why we've always been, from the beginning, focused on on the action component of what we're doing. We we never focused on getting men to talk about their their issues. The, the problems that we, we deal with, they're undeniable. But the fact that men know that the problem is there, they know that there's a solution, but they deny themselves the solution. That for us was always the mystery. And the way we approached that was to be direct, to be, to show up when, where men are. We started advertising on TV from our first year. And we didn't overcomplicate it. We went to Sky Sports and we advertised uh, during football and cricket because men watch that. But also the thing is, I remember I was speaking to one of the leading sexual kind of therapists in, in the UK when we're starting the business because I was also trying to really understand the, the subject. And she was describing to me how she effectively was, she was dealing with sexual addiction. And when she was offering group therapy, she couldn't really get any men to really engage. When she started positioning the exact same thing as courses and education, it became a lot easier to sell it to men. When it comes to performance, men do not like to talk, of course, about diet, but men are obsessed about their weight. Men will gladly share about workouts. If you look at kind of um, Drew Huberman's, the Huberman Lab podcast was the third most popular globally podcast on, on Spotify, right? Which is just blows my mind how much that has changed. Like I've been following people like Peter Atia, like David Sinclair, like people that have been writing about things for a long time. That's a key difference between now and when I was first thinking about this subject in 2012, how much of popular culture health has become, how invested we are, how curious we are. So yes, this idea that men don't engage, don't speak, don't think about their health the same way that women do is absolutely true, but it is drastically changing and it's changing very, very quickly. Love it. 
You mentioned earlier that you scaled quickly, and I heard you in another interview actually say that you think you might have even scaled Newman too quickly. Tell us why. Why did you say that? What do you actually think about that on reflection? How does one scale too quickly? What are the problems from doing it? So you scale too quickly when you um, when you're so resource constrained and you have something that works, you absolutely double down on it, right? Like you you should. But some of the investments that you know you need to be making for the long term, they take a backseat. For example, the I believe that the original vision around the proposition, the product, the technology that we wanted to build and I wanted to build when I started the business was 100% the right one. And we are in a great place now, but we could have been here 18 months earlier. But it would have meant that we didn't grow as quickly as we did in those first few years. It's an extremely difficult balance to find, right? How much you invest in the long term versus short term. And again, hindsight, really easy to apply. The one thing that I would say, some of the things that you know in principle are correct, they're foundational on what you're building. You should just find ways to invest in them from day one. It doesn't mean that you bet the farm on them. It doesn't mean that you spend 50% of your time and your team's time there, but it doesn't mean that you spend zero time there. You just need to find that balance, commit to it, make a discipline out of it, and you will get those dividends coming back on that journey. So that's what I, you know, we could have done more of. But again, the thing that I learned is to take it a little bit easier on myself with those things. You will make those decisions that you will look back and say, you know, I wish I could have done that differently. And mm -hmm. it's just... And I make a point of actually telling the team, my team, about this, because some of my, the best people that I have in the team, they, the bar they set themselves is very high, and they don't always meet them, and they take it very hard. And if you're not missing that bar, that means you haven't set it high enough. And it is important to just be a little bit more kind of chill with yourself about those things. Bit damned if you do, damned if you don't, eh? The uh, entrepreneur's dilemma. So if Newman doesn't succeed, if it becomes your next failure, or in erectile dysfunction language, a flop, why? What would have gone wrong? What's stopping you from getting through to ultimate success? Um, you know, it's, it's so hard to, none of these things are guaranteed, right? And also, we're five years in now in the business. And... There's no guarantees that five years from now, 10 years in that journey, you will still have the right to exist at that point, right? Now, what I tell myself and what I tell the team is that we're at the point now where we can course correct when we make mistakes. The thing is to make mistakes faster and to learn and to be clear-eyed when we make those mistakes. So if... I genuinely mean one of the values that we have in the business is that it's 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 up to us. The market for us is there. The problems are there and they're not going away. It is changing, of course, very, very quickly. As long as we are honest with ourselves, as long as we work to the best of our potential and our ability, and as long as we, when we do make mistakes, we correct them, we're going to be okay. When we do, don't do those things, that's when you, you get into trouble. What's your 
plan for Newman? Do you aim to sell it? Do you aim to list it? Is it private? Can't share it? Have you thought about it? The business is in a in a healthy place now. It is growing, but it's doing that sustainably. And we need to double down on that. It's a it's time of investment. It's time of going back. You know, we've just been through two very, very difficult years for everybody. And I'm really proud of how we have come through stronger from that side. So now I just want us to kind of enjoy the momentum that we have to really grow the business. And then we'll we'll see where we go from, from that, right? But I'm enjoying it. We are enjoying it. We are getting better. So that's that's what we're focusing on. Third time in the uh, in the driving seat, what is your advice for entrepreneurs that want to go on a journey in entrepreneurship and perhaps like you, like me, become serial entrepreneurs where essentially, unless Satya comes knocking, you see yourself as unemployable? For me, it wasn't really an option. I was 100% convinced that I was going to do this. I, uh, I remember reflecting on it really kind of, you remember I was saying that journey when I was a 21 or something like that, I remember looking back and saying, like, why do I really want to do this? And I thought about it one way. I thought about it another way. I analyzed that, this, that from whatever angles. In the end, I just kind of accepted it. And I was like, you know what? (laughs) This is what I want to do. So don't overthink and just go for it and do it. There's no right time to do this. I did it really early on where the cost of failure was effectively zero. Because even if the business failed, I was just investing in myself and I learned a ton. Some people start businesses when they're, you know, in their 40s and their 50s from a position of strength, market expertise, networks, and and everything else. My advice would be to just, if you're really compelled about doing it, you really want to build something, then just accept it, go for it, and, and, and try to get it done. But also accept that, you know, it might not work out and you're going to learn a whole bunch of stuff. And as long as you keep your integrity, your character and yourself intact, the rest kind of doesn't really matter. And whether you succeed or you fail, you're going to find a way through. Amazing. Socrates, thank you so much for joining us on Secret Leaders, as wise and deep as your name would suggest you would be. Dan, thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this episode and found it useful, please write us a review and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. It makes a real difference and we genuinely love reading what you think. We read every single review. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. I've been your host, Dan Murray-Serta, and we'll be back next week with more lessons for entrepreneurs and leaders. See you next time.